Let's just get the obvious out of the way. Happy birthday, Tim. <laughs> Talking about old people, um, I, I grew up in the golden age of cartoons and comic books. And it was different then, alright? It was different then. Good guys were good guys. And bad guys always lost. Always. Um, and I wasn't the sort of kid that sides with the villain in the story. I, I was the optimist when I read comic books. I was the optimist that knew that no matter what, the good guys will always win. Yep. All right? But I did have a favourite villain. I'm not sure if you had a favourite villain or not in the stories that you read. For some reason, Harvey Dent, some people know who I'm talking about, Harvey Dent, a.k.a. Two-Face. Now, this wasn't an illustration, but it's worked in all right. Um, Two-Face from the DC universe where Batman reigns supreme, all right? Not Superman. I'm not a big fan of Superman. Batman. I'm not sure what it was exactly that I liked about Harvey Dent, um, or Two-Face, maybe it was probably his backstory a little bit, or that he was just a guy with really good intentions, but just got caught up in the wrong crowd, got caught up in something bigger than himself and paid the consequences for it. But either way, there is something about Two-Face that intrigued me, and I was often torn between whether I should feel sympathetic towards him, or knowing that he was a bad guy, right? So he should always lose in his battles with Batman. But today isn't really about Harvey Dent or Two-Face, but it, it was something I thought about as I was preparing for today's message. He makes a useful illustration of something that we will see, I think, in today's sermon, in today's passage that we're going to look at. Um, today is the last of five weeks that we've been doing in a series called Threads of Scandalous Grace, where we've traced, if you've followed along, the stories of five different women, each recorded very deliberately by Matthew in his genealogy of Jesus, which you can find in Matthew chapter 1. We looked at Mary's story to begin with, remember, the mother of Jesus. And then we went right back to the very beginning and we looked at Tamar. Then we looked at Rahab last week. We looked at Ruth. We're going to look at her story in much more detail a little later this year. Looking forward to that. But now we finish with the woman who Matthew names in Matthew chapter 1 as Uriah's wife. Uriah's wife. So today we are looking at the story of Bathsheba. Bathsheba, the wife of someone else. All right? Now, I did mention Harvey Dent or Two-Face because today we are confronted in this story of Bathsheba with the inevitable double-edged sword of sin. 
Sin always has two faces. Always. Um, you could think of it as a, a coin toss, one of Harvey Dent's trademark moves. Toss a coin, heads or tails. You could think of sin as a bit like that. Sometimes the coin is tossed and we're faced with one side of sin, but the other side of sin is never too far away. Let's pray together and then we're going to read Bathsheba's story, or part of it anyway. Lord, help us this morning as we read your word to hear your voice. And Lord, it is a severe mercy to be confronted with our own sin. And yet, Lord, we ask for that. Will you convict us of sin? Will you help us see the double-edged sword that cuts? But, but Lord, don't crush us, we pray. Help us to see Jesus, who is the answer, your answer to sin, and who is our hope and our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Bathsheba's story primarily begins with um, her introduction in 2 Samuel. So if you could grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11, that's where we're going to read somewhat of her story, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we're just going to read the first 17 verses of that chapter. Her story sort of stretches for, for quite some way um, into the narrative from at this point in time in, in history, but we're going to read probably the, the infamous part um, where we are introduced to Bathsheba. 2 Samuel chapter 11, reading from verse 1. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. It says, In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her and he said, isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah? The Heathite. David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterwards, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hethite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. And then he said to Uriah, go, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah 
slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. David questioned Uriah. Haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answered David, The ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I'll not do this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. He went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting. Then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab. And some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hethite also died. Down to verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. This is God's word. We, we actually know very little about Bathsheba. Apart from the fact that scripture repeatedly emphasizes that she was the wife of Uriah, the wife of someone else. It would seem, I think, that God has recorded her story, and if you read it all the way through and trace it, it is a story of courage, it is a story of resilience. But he's recorded it in such a way that it continually reminds us of the long reach of sin. You see, we can't talk about Bathsheba without thinking of David. We can't talk about Bathsheba without acknowledging the way that sin not only mars one life, the life of the perpetrator of sin, but it also mars the victims of sin. This, in a very real way, is the story of sin's two faces. Now, I want to be very clear at the front end of this and make a statement about Bathsheba. I completely reject the once common view that Bathsheba was some type of temptress. 
right? That somehow she seduced David into the relationship. That whole um, line, you know, well, David's just a man. What's he supposed to do type of thing? You know, she was getting naked on the roof after all. Right, that view is complete and utter garbage. It was then, it is now. I think that view dehumanises both women and men. Right, that view says to us that women are little more than objects and men are little more than senseless slaves to their desires. Neither of those are true. Bathsheba was obeying the Mosaic law by following ritualistic washing at the end of her menstrual cycle. She was doing so on the rooftop bathing area, which was set aside for that, well after dark, we would read, and well after when most people had gone to bed. David, it would seem, couldn't sleep that night, got up to take a wander on his rooftop palace, usually the grandest and largest building in the area. From that position, he saw this woman bathing. And the Bible takes special note of the fact that she was considered a very beautiful woman. So what should David have done? If we follow the, well, he's just a man. What was he supposed to do type of line? Well, it leads us exactly down the path that the story unfolds in. What should have David done? He should have had a cold shower. That's what he should have done. Right? He should have turned around and honoured this woman by giving her the dignity that every person, whether they are man, woman, beautiful or not, deserves. That's what he should have done. Should have gone back to bed. But he didn't. He didn't. He let what I believe was an unlooked for image happen chance. He let that image, though, linger a little longer. Right? He strolled on the rooftop far longer than he should have. That image was given the chance to grow roots. Those roots let the image turn into a thought. The thought turned to a plan. The plan turned to action. An accidental image turned into temptation, which was deliberately fostered into full-blown sin. Right? This is David's sin, not Bathsheba's. No doubt about it. The fault sits with him and it sits with him alone. But if only sin was that simple, right? But it never is. It never is. Sin is always two-faced. Sin may swing the sword, as it were, but it's the victim who's cut by it. All right? Or sin is the stone that's thrown into the pond, but the ripples spread out, don't they, impacting all those around. So I'm going to think of sin for a moment this morning, and we want to look at both its sides. Sin, side A, and then we're going to look at sin, side B. For those of you under 30, this is a cassette. 
I used to listen to these on my Walkman while reading comic books. It was best paired with a pencil. Right, you might be familiar with the story of Bathsheba. Maybe you've heard it before, about David's sin against her. But not only against her, against Uriah. But not only Uriah, did you see that there were other soldiers who died that day, along with Uriah? And ultimately, this sin is named as being a sin against God. Sin always has a long arm. Always. Sin is a thief. Sin promises much, but never stops taking. 2 Samuel chapter 12, we read from chapter 11, but 2 Samuel chapter 12 records the aftermath of David's sin for us. How the prophet Nathan approaches him with a a concocted story of injustice that had happened in David's kingdom. And this story of abuse and injustice provokes in David an almost uncontrolled rage in him. And he announces death to the perpetrator and demands to know who was it to which Nathan replies with his finger pointing, you are the man. David, you are the man. And in that moment, a carefully constructed wall of deceit falls down, I think, with bone-crushing power. If you've been in that place where David has been, you will know that the impact of it knocks the air from your lungs. It slowly restricts your chest as you struggle to draw breath and come to terms with what is about to happen. My sin has been found out. That's how I imagine David's world as the seconds pass after Nathan's declaration. You are the man. Right? The blood that had only been momentarily sort of pounding in David's ears as he was uncontrollably angry at this person, this other person out there somewhere, now hurriedly retreats, drains from his face. David is undone. What had been concealed with a blanket of deception was now stripped naked and exposed for everyone to see. The Almighty, God Almighty, had drawn up David's sin from the secret places and he had displayed it publicly. The closing words of 2 Samuel chapter 11, the last sentence in that chapter, states that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. He, he found it evil. Let's read from verse 7 in chapter 12. And you'll see how this plays out. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, this is from the English Standard Version. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms, gave you the house of Israel and all of Judah. 
And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. You shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Now, as I read chapter 11 and chapter 12, it, it's, it is a sordid tale of sin, right? Sin and deception piled up on top of each other. And it leaves me wondering, what was it? That displeased God so much. Take a look at the list. There's lust, right? Adultery. With, at the very least, an implied abuse of power that denies Bathsheba any real choice in this relationship. There's deceit. There's premeditated murder. And so the question remains, what was it that displeased the Lord? Was it just one of those things or all of those things? Is there something that's worse than the other things? What sparks David's admission of guilt in chapter 12 and verse 13, where he looks at God and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Man, David, you sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Uriah, against all the other soldiers. You sinned against Joab and putting him into that position. But David says, I have sinned against the Lord. I think that as we move back through the text, we can probably pick up a couple of important clues here. Have a look at verse 9, chapter 12 and verse 9. God asks a very probing question of David. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? In addition, down in verse 14, he says, By this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. Right? Two very significant issues in this. So apart from the list of obvious behavioral failures that have taken place, these sort of two indictments against David begin to point us to an underlying problem in David's life, spoiler alert, in our life as well. Right, so it's good to pause here a moment and break down what I think is the clearest statement of David's guilt in this passage. It's in verse 14. God says, by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. 
It's made up of three distinct phrases, that little sentence. And I think it gives us valuable insight into the relationship between sinful behavior and sin itself. And those two things are a little bit different. They're very related, but they're different. God says to him, by this deed, right? By this deed, something you did, an action, a behavior, by this deed, and then he links it with, you have utterly scorned the Lord. Those two things are linked. And they're linked with that powerful clause which says, you have, by this deed, David, you have utterly scorned the Lord. God is pointing the finger of blame squarely at David. You have, right, David, not anybody else, you, you have. There's no place to shift responsibility here. This was David's sin to own. But it says you have, David. David accomplished something. David did something. His actions achieved something. So here's the link. By this deed, and we can insert there a long list of sordid failure on David's behalf. And if we want to start applying this to our own life, it doesn't take us very long, does it? To insert our own lists of failures there. By this deed, you have David's personal responsibility for what's coming next. And then the real root of the issue. You have utterly scorned the Lord. Sin has so twisted our view of the world that we even have a twisted view of sin itself. So as bad as the list of sinful behaviours are in David's case, verse 14 moves us to identify the real problem. It's very easy for us to draw up a list of sins in our own life, certainly easy to do it in the lives of other people, to, to bullet point them. There's this, 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 and we generally go to behaviours, right? This is what the person did. This is what the person said. This is where the person went. But in, in this case, God is helping David go below that list, take personal responsibility for them, but then realise there is a deeper issue at stake than just the behaviours. This is an, an attitude of the heart towards our Creator. David scorned God, despised the Lord, David, God said to him. We all utterly scorn the Lord. We despise Him. And our behaviour both proves this, but also condemns us in it. That's sin side A. David's sin that he must own as the perpetrator of the one who scorns the Lord and that scorning, that despising of the Lord starts to show itself in his behaviours. Sin side A. Let's have a look at sin side B though. David had to own his sin. But Bathsheba had to share in the impact of it. 
Didn't she? And isn't this the nature of sin that we struggle with so deeply? To use a different analogy, it may be the spider who spins the web, but it's the fly who's caught in it, right? I have no doubt, absolutely no doubt, in a room this size, with this many people sitting in it, that in this very room sits those who have perpetrated sin against another person. No doubt. I also have no doubt that there are those sitting here this morning who are living right now in the consequences of another person's sin and not their own. Right? This is part of the horror of sin. It has no respect for innocence. Sin has no respect for innocence. Because David sinned, Bathsheba lost her husband. And later she would lose a child. David sinned and his sin caused her grief. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe your grief was caused by someone else. Maybe your pain was inflicted because of somebody else's sin, somebody else's rebellion. Yes, their behaviours, but, but ultimately we know that they have utterly scorned God. And somehow it has spilled over into your life and you are experiencing the pain that comes with that as well. Well, maybe you carry pain this morning, not because of what someone else did to you, but maybe because of what you did to someone else. Maybe you carry with you this morning the pain of shame or the pain of regret and you carry them around like constant companions who are always whispering, always reminding, always condemning. So what should we do? What should we do? Whether we've experienced one face of sin or the other, whether it's side A or side B, how do you respond? What hope is offered by Bathsheba's story for those of us ravaged by sin, either side of the sword as it cuts? Well, here's our only hope. How is it that Bathsheba could be woven into the story of Jesus' birth. That her life and her pain, the circumstances that occurred to her outside of her control, how could those be woven into as a scandalous thread of God's grace? In the story of the gospel? Or how is it that God could refer to David as a man after his own heart? Are you kidding me? 
What hope is there for the Bathshebas of this world who have been caught up in the pain and the effect of other people's sin? And what hope is there for the Davids of this world? Or what hope is there for me? Or for any one of us whose sinful choices hurt the people around them and often the people that we love the most. Let me say this morning as clearly as I can, our only hope, our only hope is grace. Our only hope is grace. And so that means that our only hope is Jesus. We don't know much about Bathsheba. But at this point in the story, she could not have known. She could not have even dreamt of the fact that she would be honoured and elevated and included into what would become the part of the lineage of the Messiah. The one that would come to save the people from their sins, to rescue those who have been destroyed and ravaged by sin the sick and the poor and the outcasts, and that she would be included in that story of grace. Circumstances outside of her own control. Bathsheba was a faithful wife who caught the eye of a king. And in her culture at that point in time, she had no choice but to obey David. Even if she was already married. Bathsheba was resilient in this story as you follow her story through. Resilient in the face of multiple accounts of grief. When she lost her husband. When she lost her child. Bathsheba is a woman who was initially sought out as the object of David's desire But she shows persistence and perseverance and a spirit that isn't defined by her circumstances. I think we can learn from Bathsheba that faith is often a result of ordinary people obeying God in spite of their circumstances. Her story teaches us that our lives will not always go to plan. Unexpected circumstances will arrive. Traumatic circumstances will arrive. But God is constantly and sovereignly working through those very things in order to bring about plans that are much bigger than us. Bathsheba needed Jesus just as those like her still need him today. And maybe you're wondering, how could God ever use me? I feel hurt and taken advantage of. I feel broken because of somebody else's sin. And Jesus weeps with the brokenhearted. He knows the pain of those that are suffering sin. He grieves alongside you. 
but he also points you forward to say that does not define your life. It doesn't define Bathsheba's and it won't define yours. You can find hope in him and in his grace. Bathsheba needed Jesus. But David needed Jesus too. David needs Jesus too, just as all sinners do. We can learn something about repentance from David. As he pours out his heart to the Lord, and it's recorded for us in Psalm 51. Why don't you turn your Bibles to Psalm 51? We're not going to go all the way through this in detail, but I want to highlight this psalm as we go through. This is what we can learn about repentance from David as he pours out his heart to the Lord. Psalm 51 verses 1 and 2 in the ESV says, Have mercy on me, O God. This psalm was penned by David just after Nathan points the finger at him and says, David, you're the man, right? You're the man who has done this. You're the man who has scorned the Lord. You're the man who has abused your power. You're the man that has sinned so grievously. And in David's grief in his own sin and his acknowledgement of that, he moves away and because David was a poet, his thoughts and his journey of repentance come out in a song. And Psalm 51 is that song. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. We can learn here that David throws himself on the mercy of God and his ability to forgive sin. And if that's been your experience this morning... If you've been confronted with your own sin, throw yourself on the mercy of God and his ability to forgive. It extends far further than you think it does. Have mercy on me, O God. Here's the second thing, verse 3. David says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. So the first thing was, throw yourself on the mercy of God and his ability to forgive sin. But David needed to be aware of his own sinful actions. David needed to own his sin. I know my transgression, he said. My sin is always before me. I see it clearly. David is aware of his own sinful actions. Third thing in verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Right? David knows that the root of his problem is rebellion against God himself. This is where we could say, really, David, you've done evil in God's sight against you, only you. This is where we could easily draw up the list of all the other people that David hurt. It's not minimizing those, but this is getting to the root of the matter. David knows that his sin problem is a heart problem. And it's a heart problem that is in rebellion against God. And so he owns it. He knows the root of his problem is rebellion against God himself. 
Verse 5, David admits his natural state of sin. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. It's a big subject matter. But David understands that right from the moment of birth, he's been in a natural position with the effect of sin. Started in the garden way back with Adam and Eve and has its effect generation after generation. And David says, I know. I know that my natural state is in rebellion against God. And that's ours also. Verse 6. David recognizes what God desires of him. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David recognizes, I know what God desires of me. I know that I've rebelled against it. And so this is where it leads us to. Verses 7 down to verse 12. David recognizes that God is his only hope for a new life and a future. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. O oh God, renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore in me the joy of my salvation, your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. David is recognizing if there is any hope, if there is any future for him, it is found in God. It's found in what God can do, not what David can do. All right, this is the staggeringly good news of the gospel. All right, because sin is a heart issue, salvation needs to be a heart issue as well. And so while sinful behavior has natural consequences, a heart that scorns God can only be cured as it breaks before God in repentance. There is no amount of moral rehabilitation that can earn your ticket to heaven. You can set yourself to become a monk, to become a priest, to become a hermit. You can try to pay off your debt somehow. It will never be enough. Making a moral sacrifice will never be enough. This is what David says in verse 16 and verse 17 of the same psalm. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. You hear the language? David despised the Lord. And now he recognizes when I come to you with a broken and contrite heart, you will not despise me. That is glorious and amazing news. God does not despise a broken and contrite heart. It was good news for David. Yeah, there were still consequences for his sin. The sword never left David's house. 
but he was not cast away from the presence of the Lord. Why could God look at David and say, you, you are a man after my own heart? Because David discovered his dependency on grace. David discovered his dependency on grace. And God looked at him and said, that's what I want. That's what I want. So it's good news for David. Certainly good news for Bathsheba. Good news for those of us who are suffering the consequences of somebody else's sin. That grace extends to Bathsheba. To redeem her hurt and her pain and her grief and and include her and give her a sense of purpose and hope that she would one day be named as Matthew records. Here is the story of Jesus and there's Bathsheba. The wife of somebody else but included in God's purpose and plan. Honoured and lifted up. It's good news for David. It's good news for Bathsheba. And this morning, if you have also, like David, come in repentance and said, God, I know my sin is an issue. Not just my behaviours, but my heart. It keeps driving me towards rebellion with you. And you throw yourself on the mercy of God and the grace of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, this is good news for you this morning. No matter your story, a David or a Bathsheba, in Christ this morning, you find a God who will not despise you. Who will redeem and rescue. Who will give you a hope and a future a lineage, a lineage of grace. And so this is spectacular news for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your grace towards us, for your mercy towards us. Lord, some of us are the Davids of this story. Those of us who have used our behaviours in ways that hurt other people. But ultimately, Lord, you've shown us this morning that as bad as that is, as hurtful as it is, it's an indication that we have a heart that is in rebellion against you. So, Lord, like David, we come to you and say, Lord... Will you cleanse us? Will you wash us and make us whiter than snow? You are our only hope. Jesus, your death, your punishment brought us life, brought us healing. So Lord, cleanse us, we pray. But Lord, we also thank you for this wonderful this spectacular woman, Bathsheba, caught up in the, the schemes of sinners around her, experiencing grief upon grief, feeling like someone who has no control. And yet even then, your grace extends and weaves this story of brokenness and grief into a story of honour.
And you lift the Bathshebas of this world up and say, you are precious and worthy. And you embrace them, include them and call them your daughters and your sons. And so, Lord, I pray for those right now who are grieving with the pain of other people's sin. Lord, will you bring healing and hope in ways that only you can cleanse and bring life. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the good news of the gospel of grace. Jesus, you are our only hope. And so we throw ourselves at your feet now. And call out to you and say, you are worthy, not us. You have done everything possible that we couldn't do. And so we worship you in your name for your, for your fame so that your name would be known everywhere as the God of grace. We pray this. Amen. If something I've talked about this morning has uncovered something in your own heart that you really want to talk to someone about, Please, can you come and address myself or any one of the pastoral team or someone that you trust here and say, I need to talk with you about this. But don't leave it. And we would love to listen and pray.